Okay, so here's a little little Christmas humor. What do snowmen eat for breakfast, Jim? Snowflakes. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Now this is the direction. For those of you who don't like uh, uh, dry humor, then you know you're you're going to be bummed out for the next thirty seconds here. Did you hear the that one of Santa's reindeer now works for Procter and Gamble? It's true. Comet clean sinks. Yeah, there you go. There you go. What do you get if you deep fry Santa Claus? Crisp Kringle. Yeah. See, now that one was funny. Uh, if athletes get athlete's foot, what do astronauts get? Mistletoe. Who said, oh, oh, you're so good, Zach. You're so good. You're so good. What do you call people who are afraid of Santa? Claustrophobic. Okay, is that good, Dana? Dana I know these would be right up your alley, right up your alley. Uh, what did Santa Claus, tra- why did Santa Claus trade Rudolph, Dana? He wanted... <laughs> He wanted change for a buck. Okay? He wanted change for a buck. Where can you find literature about Santa's assistance, Dana? In the elf help section. Okay? Is that good? That's good. You're laughing, though. You're laughing. You're... It's... <laughs> What's the best evidence that Microsoft has a monopoly? Santa Claus had to switch from chimneys to windows. There you go. That's good. Okay, Jim, are you? Does it pass your approval? All right. That's good. That's good. When you stop believing in Santa Claus, that's when you start getting clothes for Christmas. And there's a lot of truth to that. There is truth to that. So we're glad. Glad you're here this morning. We're going we're gonna, to uh, unwrap Christmas for the next four weeks of Advent by studying Philippians 2. Now, why Philippians 2? Why don't you turn there in your Bibles? That's where we're going to be uh, this week and for the next four uh, why Philippians 2? Well, because as we know, Christ is Christmas. And there's no greater passage to study who Christ is, who Jesus is, how He came, what He did after He came, and why He came that first Christmas than Philippians 2. If you want to put Christ back into your Christmas, then you need to unwrap the meaning of Philippians 2. Christmas is His story. And this chapter, chapter 2 of Philippians, tells the story of Jesus from the cradle to the cross to the crown to the community that he created by his gospel. And as we move through this chapter in the weeks to come, it's kind of like unwrapping those gag gifts for Christmas. You ever had those happens a lot of times when we play Dirty Santa? That you have a gift within a gift within a gift within a gift kind of like those Russian nesting dolls. I actually have a George Brett Russian nesting doll. I don't know why, but I do. And you take the doll out, and there's one inside it, and you take it out, and there's one inside it. As you move down, and as we unwrap Christmas, we're going to unwrap. The first thing you unwrap, yes, is the cradle and Jesus uh, as a baby. But as you go through Philippians 2, you unwrap it. There's deeper deeper meanings, and we're going to get to the cross, the crown, in the community. But also, Christmas is filled with songs, right? Christmas carols, songs, and Christmas stories, and poems, like the night before Christmas. Well, this is the original song, or hymn, or poem about the night before Christmas. If you look at uh, verses 6 through 11, is this is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, Christmas song that was written by the church 
to sing to the Christ of Christmas. And then thirdly, why Philippians 2? Because Christmas is all about the Christmas spirit. I mean, even the world recognizes there is a spirit of Christmas. And what we're going to see in Philippians 2 is that the spirit of Christmas is the mind of Christ. We see this in verse 5. And everything in this chapter, everything in this chapter is intended to show us the true spirit of Christmas is the spirit that Christ had. So, so that we'll share it, that same spirit with one another, and so we will also share and show it to the lost world. So what we're going to do is we're going to light the first candle of Advent. And the first candle of Advent, at least how we celebrate it as a family, is the promise candle. The promise candle points to the prophets who promised that there would be a coming Messiah. All the way to Genesis 3.15. From the very first book of the Bible and nearly to the very first chapter, uh, the promised coming of Christ has come. And all through the Old Testament, when you think about this, we ought to be excited about Christmas as Christians because Abraham, Moses, Abraham, David, Solomon, Rahab, Esther, all of them looked forward to that which we get to enjoy. And so the first candle is the promise candle, and so we'll light that. And then we will read uh, Philippians 2 as our Christmas story and as our Advent study for this week. So let's look at uh, Philippians 2 and follow along with me, if you would. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, or literally slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, 
so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Father, we come and uh, we are humbled in just reading this story of Christmas in, found in an unlikely place in the epistles and sometimes not a place where we think of Christmas. But Lord, we pray that you would unwrap the meaning of Christmas for us from this chapter and not just unwrap it, but place it in our hearts and enable us to work out that which you put in that we may show and share the spirit of Christmas, not only in the months to come, but for the rest of our lives until you come back. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Todd, if you get the lights, let's take a look at this, uh, enjoy this uh, song and get you in the spirit.
Good stuff, huh? And let's find out what we know. So if you look at uh, Philippians chapter 2 and look at verse 5, and that's where we're going to be looking at. Uh, we're going to look at 5 through 7. And as we unwrap Christmas, uh, we're going to look at the Christ of Christmas each week, the theology of Christmas, and the spirit of Christmas. And this week, we're going to look at Christ in the cradle. We're going to look at His incarnation and see that the spirit of Christmas is serving others. But let's begin with this. And I, I this kind of this first point kind of covers everything that we're going to see in the next four weeks, and it's this. The spirit of Christmas is already ours in Christ. The spirit of Christmas is already ours in Christ, according to verse five. And that's good news. That is good news. Christ has already shown and has already shared the spirit of Christmas with those who follow and believe in Him. And that's good news because we don't have to work up the Christmas spirit, all right? And, uh, and even though, uh, you know, on TV or in media, it would appear that the, the spirit of Christmas is all per- pervasive and, and easy to experience, the reality is inside our own hearts and inside the hearts of the people that we're around on a daily basis, not so easy to get. But as Christ followers, this means that we do not have to work up the spirit of Christmas because the spirit of Christmas is based on what He has done and what He's already doing in our lives. This means that uh, the spirit of Christmas, this Christ-like spirit, is not dependent on when you start listening to Christmas music or if you listen to it at all. It means you don't have to necessarily watch It's a Wonderful Life or the Hallmark Channel to get into the spirit of Christmas. It means that it's not dependent on whether it snows or whether your flight is delayed. It doesn't mean how it doesn't it's not dependent on how many gifts you give or get. It's not dependent on how big or how small your family gathering is or if you even have a family to gather with or whether you're married or single. None of that is what the Christmas spirit is dependent on. It is ours in Christ. It's dependent on who He is and what He has done in the past, what He's doing now in the present, and what He's yet to do in the future. You see, it's all about the cradle, the cross, the crown, and the community that is the church. Look at verse 5, and I want you to focus on two words. Have, or actually three, I guess. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also where? In Christ Jesus. Now, the spirit of Christmas is ours for two reasons. First of all, Christ shows us the pattern to follow in community with one another. He shows us the pattern to follow. Now, this verse 5 looks so simple and easy, and yet there's kind of two ways it can be understood. There's two ways it can be translated. And I think the reason the Holy Spirit inspired it that way is so that we would understand it in both ways. And here's the first way. Christ shows us the pattern. So you can translate it like this. Have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the way we know He shows it to us is verses 6 through 11. What follows after verse 5 is the Bible showing us that Christ is the pattern for having the spirit of Christmas. And that's what we're going to unfold in the next 
uh, uh, few weeks. But also, number two, the spirit of Christmas is ours because Christ shares with us the power to follow in community with one another. He not only shows us the pattern, but he shares with us the power to follow that pattern. And that is so important. And so there are those who would translate verse 5 in this way, and, and you have it in your notes, have this attitude among yourselves, which you also have in Christ Jesus. You say, well, is that valid? Well, I think it is, because look at verse 1. Look at what he says in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and what he means by that is, there is all these things in Christ. You have all these things in Christ. Therefore, share it and show it among yourselves. You have the Spirit of Christmas. I've given it to you. Now you just need to show it and share it with others. And then look at verses 12 and 13. Right after verses 6 and 11 where Christ shows us the pattern, what follows in verse 12? So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This thing that Christ has shown you, He shared with you, now work it out. Work it out and notice, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what I want you to see is there's a pattern to follow, but let me be very clear, and we need to be reminded of this, we don't follow the pattern of Christ to be saved. No, quite the opposite. Because we're saved, we're able to follow the pattern of Christ. So the, he's talking to a church, a group of people in the colony of Philippi who have professed belief in Christ. And he says, because you're saved, let me show you and remind you the pattern that you can follow. But how do we receive this power? to put into practice the spirit of Christmas. Well, very quickly, let's look again at verse 1. It says, if there is any encouragement, say it with me, in Christ. And then in verse 5, he says, in Christ. So we receive it in Christ. Look at verse 1. It's also from the spirit, if there's any fellowship of the spirit. But if you drop down to verse 13, we receive it by God working in us both to will and to do it. And then finally, in verse 12, we receive it by faith, which works out what God has put in. So I just want to say at the outset of these four weeks that the Spirit of Christ is yours if you are in Christ Jesus. And He has shown us the pattern, but He's also shared with us the power to follow that pattern. So everything that we're going to learn today and in the weeks to come is doable as you work out what God has worked in you. So what is or how has Christ shown us the true spirit of Christmas? Well, number two, the spirit of Christmas is seen in the cradle of Christ's incarnation. The spirit of Christmas, the true spirit of Christmas, is seen in the cradle of Christ's incarnation. Look again at 5 through 7. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's shown it and shared it with you. But here's how, this is how he showed it to you. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Well, what do we see? Well, let me say this, having read that, Merry Christmas, because that's Christmas. That's Christmas. Christmas begins in eternity past when the Son of God chose to come to earth and be born a baby, a flesh and blood human being, a real life baby who cried and cooed, who pooped and peed, and even had projectile vomiting going on. We need to be reminded of that sometimes. This was a flesh and blood baby. And just because he was Jesus, he wasn't like this, you know, perfect child that, that, that never cried or wasn't, wasn't really human. The incarnation simply means, it's, it's, it's a word that simply means in flesh, carne, Spanish, comes from Latin though, uh, carne, flesh, meat. The Son of God becoming fully human without becoming any less God. That's as simple as I can define it for you. The Son of God becoming fully human without becoming any less God. So let's break it down. As we look into the cradle, what do we see? The first thing we see is Jesus' deity. We see Jesus' deity according to verse 6. According to verse 6, Jesus was fully God before the incarnation. And the key phrase you see there is this. He existed in the form of God. Now, in the form of God means simply this, that before the incarnation, before Jesus was ever conceived in the womb of Mary, before he was ever born and laid in that manger, he existed with an outward appearance that matched who he really was on the inside. Okay, so he's, he's not in a form of God, but not really God. No, he's in the outward appearance of God because inside he really is God. That's what form means here. He existed with an outward perform, appearance that matched who he really was, namely God in all his glorious form. It means outward appearance that accurately reflects one's true nature. As one uh, commentator said, the form of God in which the pre-incarnate Christ was clothed was the very glory of God. Now, here's why. If Christ's true nature is that of being fully God, then his outward appearance would be one of the glory of God. If you are God, then you reflect and you radiate and you possess the very glory of God. Of God. And Jesus said as much in John 17, 5. I want you to turn there. Turn to John 17, 5, because it kind of sums up, it kind of explains much of what we're seeing in verse 6. John 17, 5. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer on the night before he would be crucified. And here's what he says John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. That explains the form of God. Being with God, being God, and existing in the very glory of God. Drop down to verse 24. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you've given me for you have loved me before, before the foundation of the world. Hebrews 1.3 kind of sums it up. And Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So the form of God is the glory of God because he is God. But notice the word existed. He existed. That's in the present tense. And what that means is that God always was, always is, and all, or rather, I'm sorry, Jesus always was, always is, and always will be who? God. He will always be God. He always was. He always is. And you're saying like, man, tell me something new. This is the problem with this passage. Is we've heard it for so long. And we believe it. And we trust it. That we take it for granted. But there's all sorts of cults. And there's all sorts of people who name the name Christian who do not understand this, that Jesus always was, always is, and always will be God. Listen to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. But in case we just need a little more proof that Jesus is God and always will be God and was God before the Incarnation, look at that phrase that's in verse 6 as well. He did not regard what? Equality with God. That pretty much explains what the form of God is. If you're in the form of God, then you're equal with God because you have the glory of God. So if you're equal to God, then you're God. And if you're God, then your outward appearance will be the very glory of God. So what does it say here? Existing in the form of God, equal with God, means that He was, He is, and He always will be God, even, now listen, even if his outward form is somehow covered up or concealed. So before his incarnation, in his birth in Bethlehem, Jesus was God. He was clothed with the very glory of God because he was equal to God. He was worthy of the same worship, the same praise, the same honor, the same perks, the same privileges that come from being God and being recognized as God by others, because in heaven there are thousands upon thousands of angels. There are cherubim and seraphim that are constantly looking towards the Godhead and saying, Glory, 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 holy, holy, holy. And so as we look down to the cradle, what do we see? We see Jesus' deity. He's fully God. But what's but wait a minute. When we look down in the cradle, we don't see the glory of God, do we? What do we see? We see Jesus' humanity. We see Jesus' humanity. You see, if we had been there with Mary and Joseph that first Christmas, perhaps we were one of the shepherds 
that came to see the newborn Messiah. What would we have seen when we looked in the cradle? We would have seen a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. In other words, we would have seen Jesus' humanity. And that's verse 7. Although he existed in the form of God, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Now, he's clothed in the form of God, the glory of God before the incarnation, but in the incarnation, he takes on the form of a servant. Now, that's the same word. Form is the same word there. You ought to really circle both those words right there in your text. Why? Because I said that form means your outward appearance matches your true nature, right? So when he takes on the form of a slave, it means that his outward appearance matched his true nature, that of being a servant, or literally a slave. Wow. But what's the form of a slave? Well, look again at verse 6. The form of a slave, or I'm sorry, verse 7. Oh, I'm, I'm all mixed up. Look at verse 6. The form of God is explained by the next phrase, equal to God, right? In verse 6. Well, in verse 7, same thing. The form of a slave is explained by the next phrase, being made in the very likeness of men, or literally being born as a man. So just as the form of God was explained by the next phrase in verse 6, being equal to God, so the form of a slave is explained in the next phrase by being taking on the very nature and likeness of a man. So look at the chart there I got for you. Before the incarnation, Jesus was the Son of God in heaven. After the incarnation, He is Jesus Christ. Realize he never got that name until he until the incarnation. You know, in eternity, the father never looked over and said, Hey, Jesus. That's his name he gained when he became human. So now he's Jesus Christ, the Son of God on earth. In before the incarnation, he existed in the very form of God. After the incarnation, he took on and added the form of a slave. Before the incarnation, he was equal to God. After the incarnation, he's still equal to God, but he's born a man. Before the incarnation, he was clothed with God's glory, which is understandable. Glory and honor. You're God. That makes sense. But after the incarnation, he's clothed with human flesh, which is unthinkable. Shame and humiliation. See, we think it's normal. We think, oh yeah, well of course, Jesus be, uh, God became a man. I mean, that's that's what we needed. That's what we always believed. But you've got to understand, if you were in Philippi, in this Roman colony, which has been planted in the Middle East, far to the east from Rome, and it's been planted with Roman uh, veterans, uh, uh, Roman soldiers who are veterans, and they're retired, and they've gone to colonize this city, and, and it's a proud city. It's a little piece of Rome in the Middle East, and, and they're proud of being Romans, and they're proud of being a colony, and, and they're into status and ranks. In fact, they've dug up there in Philippi that almost uh, more than half the inscriptions say something about being a Roman colony. You see, they've, they've climbed the ladder of success 
success and, and, and they're proud of their titles. And yet here he is saying that this one who is God has come down to be clothed in human flesh. And to a Roman, that would be like being a Roman citizen and stepping down and becoming a slave. Unthinkable. Shameful. Humiliating. And yet that's what Jesus did. That is the spirit of Christmas. You see, taking the form of a slave tells us something about the true nature of God. Think about this. God's a giver, not a taker. God's a servant leader, not a selfish dictator. God was willing to do this because it was consistent with who God is. God is a servant, though He is a sovereign. And it tells us something about human nature. Human nature is to be the servant, not the master. It's to be the slave and not the one in control. That's what humanity is supposed to be. And yet, what does humanity spend all its time trying to be? We try to be God. We try to be in charge. We try to be in control. And yet, the very nature of humanity is to be a slave. And you say, wait a minute, maybe you think like a Roman and say, I don't want to be a slave. That doesn't sound very honorable. That doesn't sound very glorious. But it is when you're a slave to the sovereign God who has a servant's heart. Are you getting this? And it tells us something about the two natures of Jesus. As a God-man, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, what is Jesus' true nature? You've got to put verses 6 and 7 to have a complete picture of who Jesus is. You've got to put 6 and 7 together. What is Jesus' true nature? Well, in verse 6, His true nature is seen in the form of God, one who is clothed in all the glory of God because He is God. This is understandable. This is reasonable. This is comprehensible. But in verse 7, His true nature is seen in the form of a slave, one who is clothed in all humanity, of a man because he is a man. This is unthinkable, this is unreasonable, and this is incomprehensible. And yet that's who Jesus is. Two natures in one person. Two natures in one person. So which is it? What is Jesus' true nature? It's both. His true nature is fully God and fully man in one person. In the incarnation, Jesus became fully human without becoming any less God. Listen to Colossians 2.9. For in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Listen to John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we look down into the cradle, what do we see? We see Jesus' deity and we see His humanity. But what Paul really wants us to see in Philippians is he wants us to look in the cradle and see His humility. That's what we need to see. We need to see His humility. And Jesus shows us. Jesus' humility shows us the spirit of Christmas in His attitude in verse 6 and in His action in verse 7. Look at verse 6, the attitude that He had. What was His attitude towards being clothed with the very glory of God? His attitude was, this isn't something I'm going to hold on to. This isn't something I'm going to use for my own advantage. I'm not going to exploit this. 
so that everybody will see me for who I am and will really worship me and I'll get all the honor and praise that I deserve. No, I'm not going to exploit that. That is his attitude in verse 6. In other words, if you look at verse 3, it was the opposite of selfish ambition. It was the opposite of selfish ambition. But that attitude moved him into action in verse 7. And the action that he took was being clothed with the humanity of a man, the shame of a slave. He emptied himself, making himself of no reputation. He he self-emptied. No one made him do this. The Father didn't make him do it. Our need did not make him do it. He made the decision within himself because this is who he is. This is who God is. And so he took the action of emptying himself. In a sense, as simple as I can make it, I wish you would just comprehend when we handle these doctrines, they are holy. And, and, and yet, if you, if you deviate just one step, you know, it's like getting off just a step, and the farther you go, the farther you get off. I mean, this is like handing, handling holiness. I mean, I kind of feel like Luther presenting the, the Lord's Supper, you know, because in, you've got to get this right. You've got to understand who He really is. And in a sense, He was clothed with the glory of God, and He set aside His robe of glory, and He put on... The rags of a slave. When he put on humanity and was conceived in Mary's womb. So the question becomes, what did Jesus empty himself of? So let me give you at least four things that I think I can show from Scripture. What did he, what did he give up? He didn't give up his deity. He didn't give up his godness. So what did he give up? Number one, he gave up his position. He gave up his position in heaven. He stepped down from the seat of ruling that is always his as God. In Luke 2.12, it says, This will be a sign for you, you shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger, which is a feeding trough. Can you imagine stepping down from the throne of heaven into the feeding trough? In a cave. He stepped down from his exalted position in heaven and he came down to earth to be born in a cave. They got that very right in that song. Where animals were kept, laid in a feeding trough for a cradle in one of the most insignificant towns in all of Jerusalem to parents who were dirt poor. I don't think you could go from any higher to any lower and that would rock a Roman resident of Philippi. And to be quite honest, it rocks us. Because how many of us would do that to serve others? He stepped down from a position of sovereignty to that of a slave and a servant. And let me tell you, in Philippians 1.1, I don't think it's accident that in the only letter to a church, Paul addresses him and Timothy as slaves in 1.1 and makes no mention of his apostleship only time in a church that he doesn't mention his apostleship. Paul and Timothy greet you, slaves. Christ. Why? Because he was a slave. 
to serve and to save us. Number two, he gave up his possessions. He gave up his possessions. He surrendered the riches that are always his as God. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know this first. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you, you might become rich. He surrendered the riches of owning everything to become a man who was always dependent on the generosity and hospitality of others. He was, do you understand, he was always borrowing stuff? He was born in a borrowed cattle trough. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He never owned his own home. You mean he didn't want the Jerusalem dream? No. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. The God-man was homeless. He would either stay with friends like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, or he camped out under the olive trees on the Mount of Olives. It was the generosity of some very wealthy women who became his disciples that enabled him and the twelve to eat and to travel. He surrendered the riches that were his. Number three, his privileges. He emptied himself of his privileges. He set aside the rights that are always his as God. He set aside the perks and privileges of being equal to God. And let me tell you, they are many. But slaves have no position. Slaves have no possessions to call their own. Slaves have no privileges to enjoy. What kind of privileges? Let me just mention one or two. First is he set aside the privilege of being seen and treated as God. This is the biggest one. He set aside the privilege of being seen and treated as God. Have you ever been seen by others as less than who you are? Have you ever been treated that way? How did it feel? How did you respond? You're probably like me. If you didn't verbally do it, in your own mind, you made sure they knew who you really were. And yet Jesus came and surrendered and set aside the privilege of being seen for who he really was and treated as he really was by taking on the being fully human. And another thing he set aside, and I don't think we think about this enough, He set aside the privilege of speaking and acting on his own. Now, that's a God-given American right that no one's going to take from me, right? And yet, do you understand that for 30 years, 33 some say, Jesus never said or did anything on his own? Listen to these verses. John 5, 19 Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. I don't do anything that my Heavenly Father doesn't do. John 6.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, incarnation, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 12, 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. John 14, 10. Do not believe. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say... To you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. He gave up the privilege of calling his own shots, doing his own thing, initiating his own desires, accomplishing his own dreams to serve you and I. Number four is preferences. He gave up his preferences. He emptied himself of his preferences. He sacrificed the relationship that was his with the Father on the cross. What was Jesus' constant preference while on earth? You've got to understand this. Because, you know, we, we can go a certain amount of time not getting what we want. Right? We can tolerate giving up things. But do you understand that Jesus' entire life he sacrificed his own preference. What was his preference? Well, we already read it in John seventeen five. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He wanted to be with the Father in the glory of the Father, with his own glory as the Son of God. Why did he surrender that personal preference? John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Father, I'll sacrifice your glory. I'll sacrifice the presence of being in your presence here in heaven. I'll go down there because I want them to be with me where I am with you. And yet on the cross, he ultimately sacrificed the, his greatest preference when he said these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That preference to always be with the Father, he sacrificed. And we shouldn't be surprised then that Paul writes in this very same letter in chapter 1. Now you start understanding why Paul writes what he did in chapter 1 when he says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. My preference is to be with my Savior in heaven, but I'm torn between the two because I know I need to be here on earth for you Philippians to complete your joy. And so I know what I'm going to choose. I'm going to sacrifice my preference to be and die and just go to heaven where there is no sorrow, there is no pain, there is no sacrifice, there is no hunger, there is no cancer, there is no death, there is none of this stuff. Because I want to serve you Philippians. Why? Because my Savior did that for me. So why did Jesus do it? Why did he empty himself? Mark 10, 45 sums it all up. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why Jesus emptied himself. He came to serve the lost he came to be where they were 
and to be what they were supposed to be but were rebelling against. He came to be a servant in order to save. Now, we'll talk more about the saving aspect next week when we look at verse 8. But I want to focus in on the serving aspect. So, number three, the spirit of Christmas is serving others like Christ served us in his incarnation. This is the true spirit of Christmas. It's serving others like Christ served us in the incarnation. If I could put it this way, it would be this. You descend into greatness by becoming a servant of others like Christ did for you on that very first Christmas. In the spirit of serving others, look at verses 3 and 4 that precede verse 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. So here's what I suggest. In the spirit of serving others like Christ serves us, let's step down from our positions to serve one another, but also to serve the loss. So the way up is down. And so how do we serve others? We get down to their level in order to serve them. I don't know about you, but maybe you catch yourself saying things like this, when they measure up, then I'll help them. When they meet my expectations, then I'll serve them. But instead, we should walk in their shoes, spend time with them, listen to them, ask questions to hear their heart, and then listen to the answers to really know where they are. Step down and get down where people really are. Number two, Let's surrender our possessions to serve one another, but also the lost. Did you know it takes money to minister to people? That's why Jesus had wealthy women who generously and consistently provided because even the Son of God needed money to minister to people. This past year, our finances are down for several reasons. But I would say to you this morning this. Let's make sure it's not because any of us in this class are not giving and giving generously and as consistently as Jesus has given to us. Amen. There's all sorts of things that we can work on. There's all sorts of things that we can do. But the first place to look is to ask myself, am I giving and am I giving as generously and as consistently? You see, those who serve should also give and those who give should also serve. Jesus became poor that you and I might be rich in every spiritual blessing. Now, Mark for the Makande was an outstanding example of this. I can't think of something that we have given to that is more unselfish, more towards others with getting nothing back in return than giving money to the Word of God to people who do not have it. Number three, let's set aside our privileges like Jesus did to serve one another. Be willing to be seen and treated as less than you really are. Here's how you really know if you have this spirit. And I know it in myself, and you do too. You really know you're a servant when you get treated like one and you don't get upset. You really know that you're a servant when you get treated like one, overlooked like one, ordered around like one, and you don't get upset. 
Number four, let's sacrifice our preferences to serve one another, but also the lost, or especially the lost. Think of others before yourself. Look out for what's best for others and not just yourselves. As I said in Philippi, as a Roman colony, they just were into names and ranks and position and titles. In fact, there was all these, uh, the, the latter of success with all these occupations. And there was a certain age you could get into these occupations. And if you got into this occupation at an early age, you had to wait a certain amount of time could you, until you could go up to the next rung. And so if you did this at an early age and kept at it, you could get to the top rung at the youngest age. And so here's Jesus, who was at the top of the top and came to the bottom of the bottom. And here's Paul and Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent with all of his authority, who introduces himself to the Philippians as a slave of Jesus Christ. And then Paul thinks of Timothy here in Philippians 2. Listen to what he says about Timothy in Philippians 2. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. In other words, Timothy is like Jesus. Timothy has the spirit of Christmas. And so I'm going to send him to you because I can trust him. Trust him to be with you for your best interest, not his own. So Christmas unwrapped is the spirit of serving others like Christ serves us. So I try to think, how can we apply this this week? I don't want you to just leave here listening to a lesson. I want you to experience Advent. So here's some things. Have I come to a place where I know that I'm in Christ Jesus? And have received the power to serve others like He has served me. If you're not in Christ, then you can't do this. You won't do this. But if you are in Christ, knowing that you're in Christ Jesus, let me ask you this, as I need to ask myself, who can I serve this Christmas like He has served me? Who can I serve? Get your eyes off your own problems, off your own concerns, and ask yourself, who can I serve this Christmas? How will I need to empty myself to do it? Because I guarantee you, you can't serve others without emptying self. So what am I going to have to... What position, what privilege, what possessions will I have to sacrifice in order to do this? And then where do I need to start serving in our church to show the spirit of Christmas all year long? We had a great ovations celebration down here with a room full of servants. But let me tell you, we gladly move it to a larger place to have more servants. So where can I show this in our church? And then the last one, has my own lack of a servant's heart caused division and strife in our church? What do I need to repent of and replace with the mind of Christ? Because you see, ultimately in Philippi, there was division, there was strife. There was women who were faithful in the gospel but were at odds with one another. That's why he writes chapter 2. Because even in a church where people have received the Spirit of Christ, there can be division, there can be unity, 
due to selfishness and conceit. Wow. This rocks my world. And I hope it, hope it has yours as well. Let's pray. Father, we come. Uh, I am uh, humbled. These are profound truths. They're the cornerstone of Christianity. If we don't get this right, we don't have Christianity. If we don't trust in these truths, we are not saved. But more importantly, we must work out what you have put in. And you have put into us the spirit of a servant. And so, Father, let us use this week to reflect on this, to reflect on Philippians 2, and to look, where do I need to be more of a servant with a Christ-like spirit? What do I need to set aside? What do I need to sacrifice? What do I need to surrender? Where do I need to step down to be what you ultimately want me to be? We want to give to you the gift of a servant's heart, Lord, because that's the gift you gave to us on that first Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.